Please open up your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for the reading of our scripture this morning. In chapter 15, we'll be reading the first 20 verses. These are the words of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. May God bless the preaching of his word. Pray with me today as we come. To God's word. Our Father, as we hear these words from Paul, we can all resonate with his heart as he declares himself to be the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because of the sin that governed his life when he walked according to his flesh and the ways of this world. But Father, By the grace of God, we are what we are, and by the grace of God only. And so this resurrection day, we come confessing that it is you who have given us life, that you who raised your only begotten Son from the grave have raised us with him and made us your own. You have done what we could never do for ourselves. You have forgiven us. You have justified us, and you have given us life where before we were in bondage to death. And so, Father, we come this morning as grateful children 
of an inheritance and of a gift and of a life that we couldn't fathom before, that we couldn't take credit for, but that you have graciously and undeservedly lavished upon us. And so, Father, we come today to your word to rejoice in life, to rejoice in Christ who is our life. And we ask, God, that you would use your word not just to inform our minds, but to transform our lives. Father, give us confidence in Jesus and help a vision of Him and an understanding of who He is and what He has done. Dominate our thoughts. Dominate our souls, our emotions, our feelings, our instincts, our actions, our words, our lives. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of our hearts today as your children be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, every year, it is our joy, it is our delight, it is our great privilege to set a day, this, this particular Lord's Day in the spring, in order to commemorate and focus on and celebrate the historical events of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ bodily, physically, from the grave. And, and of course, in a very real way, we celebrate the resurrection every single Lord's Day. Because every single Lord's Day, we come in order to worship and, and give praise to the risen Christ who sits upon the throne. And, of course, in a very real way, we live in celebration of the resurrection every single day because He has raised us with Him to newness of life as Christians, as people who are in Him by faith. And so every day that we walk in Christ is a day that we walk in the power and celebration of His resurrection. But it is a privilege to be able to devote this Lord's Day to the all-important reality, the governing reality of the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the the dead on the third day after His crucifixion. Today, what we need to focus our minds on is the, the factuality of it and realize that the grave could not possibly contain the Lord of glory after He made payment for our sins. Death had no power to hold Him because death is the sting of the law. Death is the curse of sin. And He paid for sin so sufficiently that death fell right off of Him and could do nothing to Him. Because in His sovereign majesty and authority, He broke and destroyed and vanquished the curse of death on the cross. And so sufficient was His work. So complete was His payment for sin. So full was His victory. So absolute was His satisfaction of the justice and the wrath of the eternal God that death simply wasn't an option anymore. Again, death is the penalty of sin. It's not just some natural, tragic reality that we live with in this world and come to expect and and come to just resign ourselves to. There is only death because of the curse 
against sin. And the Bible makes that abundantly clear all the way from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Death clings to sin. That's what it is. And on the cross, Jesus was covered with my sin, with your sin, with our sins. But His blood shed was such a sufficient payment and His sacrifice was such a perfect substitute that death could not stick to Him. Picture a, picture a rock climber, the world's best one, the most experienced rock climber, the guy that dared to scale El Capitan in Yosemite without ropes, simply by hand, and he did it in like four hours, where most people take a couple of days to get up that sheer granite slab. Picture that guy trying to climb a perfectly vertical wall of smooth, polished, stainless steel. No handholds, no footholds, no cracks, no crevices. How's he going to get up there? Where's he going to find purchase? He's not. He's going to slide right off of it. That is what death did on the day when Jesus was raised. It could find no purchase on him. There was nothing for it to stick to. And so he rose because that was the only possibility in the reality of this world that God has created and ordered. And so that great truth, that historical reality of the the actual historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus lies at the very heart of the Christian faith and the Christian life, and it is absolutely and supremely important amongst the truths that we stand on. It is non-negotiable. You cannot be a Christian and not believe that Jesus was raised. And yet, for a lot of people who call themselves Christians, who say, Jesus is my Savior and one day I will live with Him forever and I'm following Him. For a lot of people who claim that, the resurrection of Jesus sort of becomes something of a footnote. Something they kind of believe Something to sort of be considered, but not something to spend a lot of time on. A lot of Christians, I think, don't really understand the all-important connection between the historical resurrection of Jesus from the grave and the gospel of eternal salvation. And in fact, you can go steps beyond that. There have been surveys that show that as many as 25%, one quarter of Christians people who say they're Christians, outright deny the historicity of the resurrection. We don't don't really believe that happened, and we don't believe it's important to believe that it happened. So they don't. Take it another step. Here's a reality. In England, it was revealed that as many as one-third, 33% of the clergy in the Church of England deny the historical factuality and reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Is that not astonishing? What do they preach on Easter? 33%. And to my mind, and to Paul's mind, 
in 1 Corinthians 15, that actually means they're not actually Christians at all because this truth is so foundational and so central to the gospel and the Christian faith that it is the sine qua non. It is that which out, without which there is nothing. You can't lose this truth. Paul says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's a big if. And so the inverse of that is also true, right? It is impossible to be saved apart from genuine faith in the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we're going to look at this passage here together, this Resurrection Day. And in this passage, Paul lays out for us, and he does it in painful detail, he lays out for us exactly why the Gospel depends upon the resurrection, the historical fact of it. He's going to list for us here a a series of specific reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so vitally, indispensably important to the gospel. And look at how Paul, as Aidan was reading this passage, think through it and think about how, how Paul lays out this list of reasons why the resurrection is so vital. Notice that he, he's looking at things from sort of a negative standpoint, right? This isn't a list of positive affirmations. This isn't a list of the resurrection is essential because kinds of, of propositions, right? This is a list of, of without the resurrection propositions. Unless, this is a list of unless statements. It's a, it's a list of the massive and, 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 and catastrophic and eternal implications and ramifications that will be real if the resurrection of Jesus didn't actually happen. Now, Paul is dealing with this here in this chapter as a part of uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus, as a part of the a larger and more general and broad teaching about the reality of the resurrection from the dead in general. Because in his day, as in our day, but for different reasons, in his day, it was common for people to deny and to doubt that anybody being raised from the dead was even possible. And in his day, it was because they ascribed to this worldview that said that material stuff is, is what we call evil. It's bad. It's not good. And that spiritual stuff is what good is. And so they believed as a result of this sort of dualistic mindset where, where, where physical stuff is bad and spiritual stuff is good, they believed one of the implications of that for them was that the physical body is not good, but the soul inside of it is. And so if somebody dies, that's a good thing because that, that body that's sort of imprisoning their soul and restricting it from realizing full goodness is gone now, and the, and the soul gets to be free in an ultimate sense now. Why would you want the body to be raised? But see, when Jesus 
who is the maker of this world, when he came into the world, he came teaching that their whole view of the world was all wrong. This idea that matter is bad and spirit is good and that that's where the real antithesis is in this world between physical stuff and spiritual stuff, because that's, there is an antithesis, but that's not it. The problem in the world isn't material stuff. The problem is in the world is human sin. It's our rebellious disposition towards God, our attitude towards God. That's what's evil. When God made physical stuff, He said it is good. What's bad is our rebellion against the God who made us. And, 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 and our sin has, has plagued every part of us. It's brought decay and corruption on us bodily, and it corrupted our, our spirits and our minds such that all of us, not just our souls, but all of us, our bodies too, need to be redeemed. You don't have to raise your hand, but in your mind, raise your hand if you can feel the effects of sin on your body and you're waiting for it to be redeemed. Yeah, I'm only 50, but you know what? It's not like it was when I was 20. And my dad's 82, and he's going, this is bad. And all of us can, can resonate with what Paul says in Romans 8, that, that it's groaning. It's, it's longing to be redeemed. And so, see, this is what, Paul, uh, this is what, this is what Christianity teaches the redemption of the soul through faith in Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sins and, and justification and new spiritual birth, it teaches all of that and, and also, undeniably, indisputably, and necessarily the future coming redemption of the body when Jesus returns so that the whole man body and soul will be fully redeemed and will spend eternity with God in a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus comes and finally makes all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So that's what this whole chapter is actually all about. It's, it's about giving Christians who are living in this groaning world and living in groaning bodies that are desperate to be redeemed fully, it's about giving us hope that in this world that's full of disease and death and corruption and decay of every kind, physically and spiritually, this isn't all that there is. There is a future and eternal hope beyond these bodies, beyond this present world, beyond this present age. And here's the problem. The false and sinful and fallen worldview of our culture wants to rob us of that hope, just like it wanted to rob the people in, in, in the days of the Corinthians of their hope. And so, just like they were tempted to deny the desirability and actuality and feasibility and reasonability and truthfulness of the resurrection so today satan is tempting us by a different route but with the same conclusion it's not reasonable to believe that people will be raised from the dead or even that jesus was 
So see, Paul, this is Paul's point. If we're tempted by the, the nearsighted and myopic and man-centered false view of the world, if we're tempted to doubt and deny the possibility of bodily resurrection from the dead, then we're going to apply that doubt. We're going to apply that denial even to the resurrection of Jesus. And if we do that, it is absolutely catastrophically disastrous. And see, this is exactly what's going on today. 33% of clergy in the Church of England, 25% of people in America who call themselves Christians. This is what's going on with significant numbers of people who call themselves Christians. They've fallen prey to the world's way of thinking and become convinced that we can only reasonably believe that something is true, that something is real, if we can see evidence of it in the physical world. Those are the rules now. If you can't see evidence of it in the physical world, it, it's not believable, right? It's kind of like a, I mean, it's, it's really stupid. It's as dumb as a fish. It's as dumb as a fish spending all of his days in the ocean or a pond with the whole rest of the world and universe around him. But he's just, all he knows is the pond. And so the fish claims that nothing can be reasonably believed unless there's evidence of it in the pond. And then if somebody comes down into the pond and says, hey, there's more than the pond. I want to tell you about the reality outside of the pond and how much better it is than the fish gets mad at him and kills him. That's what we do. Right? It's like, a, it's like a man taking his blind friend because he loves his blind friend. And he wants to tell his blind friend about something majestic and beautiful. So he takes him to the Louvre in, in Paris. And he sits him down in front of the Mona Lisa and he spends hours describing every single detail of that masterpiece of Da Vinci's. And he tells him all about Da Vinci himself and all of the theories about how this painting came to be and who its subject was and why she's got that funny little grin on her mouth. And he just spends the whole day telling his friend who can't see it with his own eyes how wonderful this painting is only to have at the end of the day the blind friend laugh at him and tell him that he's an idiot for believing in the Mona Lisa. Or for believing in Da Vinci. He just denies it all. He says that he's a fool to believe even that he has eyes. Have you ever had an unbeliever tell you that you're a fool for even believing that you have faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ who has given you life? That's the, that's the way the world works. And, and we were a part of it, right? When, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we were blinded by the evil one to the truth of God's word. That's the kind of blindness we all came into this world with from birth. That's the spiritual condition of our sin in suppressing God's truth in our unrighteousness. And that's how people's minds are being trained to think these days. And the results for their souls, catastrophic. So that's why we got to look together at what Paul 
by the revelation of the eternal, almighty, all-knowing God who made the universe and, and sent his son to come down here into our pathetic little pond and say, hey, this is how it really works. we got to pay attention because he came down here and he revealed all this to us and he died on a Roman cross and he was raised on the third day and he said it's important. Paul says in verse 13 here of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and he means again in general, if it's impossible for human beings to be raised from the dead in general, then not even Christ, who is a human, has been raised. And then verse 14, here's the first horrifying implication of that. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain. And here's what he does not mean by that. He does not mean, well, shoot, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then I'm out of a job, and, and, and what am I going to do? I guess I'll have to go back to tent making, right? That's not what he means. He, he didn't get into the business of preaching the gospel for, for money or for financial security or job security or prestige, certainly not or any other earthly under the sun reason, right? Because before he became a preacher of the gospel, Paul had all the prestige. He had power in this world. He had influence in this world. He had money in this world. He had the respect of lots of people in this world, and he gave it all up. He went into the ministry of Jesus Christ such that he constantly was being flogged and beaten and stoned and imprisoned and enduring shipwrecks and starvation and homelessness and sleeplessness and persecution and eventually martyrdom because this gospel is worth more than his own life and anything in this world. Paul gave up any and every earthly ambition and devoted himself to a life of suffering and hardship and affliction the day he met the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul divested himself of all earthly gain in order to follow Jesus who had come here in order to do the same. So when Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, here's what he means. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised then the gospel is worthless and has no power if Christ has not been raised. Think back up to the very beginning of this chapter that Aiden just read for us, verse 1, right? He makes it clear that the gospel is at the heart of his concern here. Not just convincing people of the historical reality of the resurrection, but ultimately, and more importantly, and by way of that, Convincing them of the veracity of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I want you to be saved eternally, and if you take the resurrection out of the equation, you cannot be. There is no hope of life for you, he says. The gospel, the, the euangelion is the Greek word. It means good news. The good news of what Jesus did to save us from our sins and deliver us from the wrath of God and the condemnation of God. 
is, Romans 1.16, the very power of God unto our salvation. The preaching of the gospel, which calls people to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus alone for salvation, is the means that God uses to raise dead souls to life and to open blind eyes and make us see the Mona Lisa and beyond the pond. God uses His Word to change our rock-hard hearts and give spiritual life to all who used to be spiritually dead and transform lives that were lived at animosity with God into lives that love and worship and serve Him. The Gospel does that. And Paul's saying, I know the Gospel does that because it did it for him, right? His eyes had been opened. His hard heart had been softened. The dead spirit had been given life. And all of his life had been radically reoriented and transformed. None of that happened when he was still known as Saul of Tarsus. None of that happened. The hard-hearted, arrogant, self-righteous Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the persecutor of Christians, the hater of God and Christ. None of what happened to him to transform his life into the servant of God who endured all the persecution, all the lost, and devoted himself to the service of Jesus, even though it cost him everything. None of that is explainable by any other power than the power of God working through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here... What he's saying to the Corinthians is, this is the same gospel that I'm preaching to you. And by God's grace, you've received it. And by God's strength, you're standing in it. And by God's power, you're being saved by it. But, and he's saying it with utmost urgency, if you take the resurrection out of it, then you completely short-circuit it. You empty it of its divine power to save. If you rip the heart the beating heart out of somebody's chest, there is no life left in their body. And Paul says the resurrection is the beating heart of the gospel. Because the power to save people from sin and from death lies in the truthfulness of the message itself that Jesus gave himself over to death as a payment for our sin and that he did it victoriously, successfully, sufficiently so that he conquered death. By being raised on the third day. If you change the message by making it about either someone other than the historical Jesus or making the cross about something other than payment for our sin or denying that Jesus actually succeeded in conquering death and so therefore necessarily rose from the dead. If you change any of that stuff, then it's no longer the gospel. It's some other message. And if it's some other message, it's got no power to save anyone from anything. So, Paul's saying, I gave you this gospel, you received it, you were saved by it, you've been standing in it, you're, you're supposed to give it to other people now, you're supposed to be out there preaching it so that others can be sta- saved and raised to newness of life. But at the same time, you're trying to tell them of the gospel of, of salvation and victory over death, you're, you're denying the resurrection. You're cutting out the heart. And if you do that, it can no longer be the gospel. It can't save anyone. 
people will end up in everlasting condemnation unless Jesus Christ was raised and unless we stand firm on the gospel message of his death and his resurrection. Good Friday is not good without Resurrection Sunday. And also now Paul goes on in verse 14 and says, this is the the second horrible implication of denying the resurrection of Jesus. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus, not only is the gospel emptied of its saving, life-transforming power, but if you truly deny the resurrection of Jesus, Christian, your faith is in vain also. 25% of Christians, 33% of, of the clergy in the Anglican church, your faith is in vain if you deny the resurrection. It, it, the word vain means it's, it's void. It means it's empty. It means it's useless. Here's a, here's a little bottle of water. If I start choking and coughing and I can't keep talking, I'm going to open this up and start drinking it, right? If it's empty, it's not going to do me any good. If there's no resurrection, your faith's not going to do you any good. Down in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That word means fruitless, powerless, useless, worthless, pointless. Why bother if Christ has not been raised? If the tomb is the end of the story and death had victory over Jesus, don't bother. Go to the beach. Thirdly, verse 15. Not only, if Jesus isn't raised, actually, not only is the gospel vain, not only is our faith vain, but also, if Jesus wasn't raised, all of Scripture is meaningless. Here's why. All of those writers of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, who prophesied and proclaimed His victory over death were wrong. And you can't trust a word of it. They were all false witnesses, Paul said. They were all liars. We are even found. If Jesus wasn't raised, then then everything I've told you is wrong. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not actually raise, if it is true that the dead cannot be raised. From cover to cover, God has been anticipating the great reality of the suffering of His servant and His resurrection and victory over death. And if He didn't actually raise none of it's true, David's a false witness in Psalm 16, which Ian read for us at the head of the service. Because David prophesies of Jesus, right? God, You will not abandon my soul to to Sheol. You will not allow Your Holy One to see corruption. Isaiah is a false prophet in Isaiah 53 if Jesus isn't raised because Isaiah prophesies that after the death of the Messiah, after He's cut off from the land of the living, after He makes an offering for our sin, that God prolonged His days by raising Him up. Isaiah 53 verses 8-10. through 10. The prophet Jonah, the prophet Amos, all the prophets who foresaw the the coming resurrection of the Messiah, they were false prophets if in fact he hasn't been raised. Job would be wrong when he says in Job chapter 19, For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh shall I see God. You can rip that one right out of your Bible. If Christ has not been raised. Psalm 118. 
which is the psalm that Jesus and his disciples sung after the Last Supper as they were making their way towards the Garden of Gethsemane and he making his way towards the cross. It's all wrong. If Jesus was not raised on the third day, when it proclaims of the Messiah, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but has not given me over to death. Death will not have victory. Well, that's, that's all a bunch of hogwash if he stayed in the tomb. If Jesus was not raised, all of these Old Testament witnesses are false witnesses, and also all of the New Testament witnesses, right? Including, and especially, Jesus himself, who said in John chapter 2, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, referring, John says, to his own body. All of the gospel writers who recorded his resurrection, all of the New Testament writers who proclaim it, all of the disciples, all of the women who witnessed the empty tomb that Sunday morning are wrong. All of the more than 500 witnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ that Paul mentions in verse 6 here of 1 Corinthians 15. James himself. All of the apostles, verse 16. Paul himself, who saw, who heard, who encountered the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, whose life was radically transformed by resurrection power. If Jesus wasn't raised, they're all false witnesses if in fact Jesus wasn't raised. So from the very beginning, from the earliest chapters of Genesis to the closing chapters of Revelation, the Holy Spirit, inspired writers of the Scriptures have been telling one story. And the story is this. Death entered into this world through sin, but as we heard on Good Friday, the seed of the woman, Jesus, would come and crush the head of the serpent bruising his own heel in order to do it, laying down his own life, being bruised and crushed for our transgression, but in doing it, taking away the sting and victory of death by performing a work so sufficient and so eternally complete that death could have no handholds or footholds or purchase on him, and so it would slide right off of him, and he would, by the way God has designed this universe simply raised by the power of God and the victory of Christ over death itself. All of it hangs on Jesus' victory over death. But if death still has the victory, if death still carries the sting of the law's condemnation, then the story's over. And so you can see why Satan is so keen to have us doubt that Jesus could be raised. It's a, it's a very large part of what the entire Enlightenment was about and scientific revolution was about, despite all of the providentially wonderful things that have come out of those things. It all taught us to doubt things that we cannot see. It all taught us to to not believe anything being believable except if it can be observable in the pond. Satan is keen. He wants so much to blind people's minds to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus because if he can do that and make them go, I don't, that's not even possible, then there's no hope for them. It empties the gospel message of power. It makes 
faith in Jesus useless. It makes all of the authors of Scripture liars, and it makes God's whole eternal plan of redemption moot if Jesus wasn't raised. So, it's kind of a big deal. It's not a trifling matter. Someone who is doubting or denying the resurrection of Christ is, 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 is turning their back on everything that matters. The veracity of the word, the power of the gospel, the source and the object of, of saving faith himself, the entire purpose of God to redeem fallen humanity, to redeem this whole fallen world and our decaying bodies from the ravages of sin and death. None of that's true. None of that matters if Jesus hasn't been raised. So again, the results of turning your back on all of that are devastating personally and eternally. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death, physical death. If they believed in Jesus and Jesus wasn't raised and then having believed in Jesus they died, there's no hope for them. They've perished eternally. That's the disastrous and eternally ruinous reality that is eternally inescapable if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. That's, that's what it means. There is no gospel. There is no hope. There is no faith. There is no word. There is no life. And we are all still in our sins if Jesus wasn't actually raised. So it's not just that we've... See, he's not just saying, well, you've been believing the wrong things and I need to tweak your theology a little bit. And it's not just, well, if none of it's true, then you know we've just wasted a bunch of Sundays going to church when we could have been doing something more fun. The problem isn't finding something to invest our lives in that can give us a meaningful experience during our short lives in this world. It's, the problem is this. What we need is this. We need to find someone to lean our lives on who can deliver us from sin and death and the wrath of God that pours down from heaven against all unrighteousness. Because God is holy and God is just and God will brook no sin and He will make every wrong right. And that's a good thing, right? That God is and that God is holy and just is a good thing. People don't like those truths, but they're inconvenient truths for sinners, but they're truths nonetheless. People can try to pretend that it's irrational, that it's, that it's unreasonable to believe in God. But see, it's never actually that in their minds they find unbelief in God to be unreasonable. It's that they have laid hold of a, a system of belief and believability that is convenient for their sinful lifestyles because in their sinful lifestyles they find the truth of God to be not unreasonable but unacceptable. And so they reject it. Belief in God isn't hard rationally. It's, it's as basic to believe that God is as to believe that the things that you see with your eyes are actually real. 
And if you want to start doubting basic things like the existence of the God who clearly made and ordered this universe, you can also start doubting everything that you see with your eyes and its reality. Maybe you're hallucinating. Maybe the connection between your eyes and your brain isn't working right. Maybe your brain is misinterpreting. Maybe you're being deceived. Let's see, nobody, we don't think that way. We don't assume those things. We don't, we don't run experiments on every single thing. that we. Now, is it really a bottle of water? It's a bottle of water because I see it. We don't need to make philosophical arguments or posit scientific theories in order to believe that what our eyes see is actually what's out there. We just accept the reliability of our senses. It's, 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 it's rationally basic. And so, rationally, is belief in God. The heavens declare His glory. And it takes a lot more faith, by the way, to say that it all just happened, that everything magically came from nothing without somebody designing it, and that it, 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 it achieved this massive, or I don't care how many billions of years you think it needed to take to get there, it doesn't make sense. It's not rational. Nothing doesn't ever come from, something doesn't ever come from nothing unless someone creates it. The whole creation is replete and screaming with evidence of God's invisible attributes and eternal power and divine nature. And just like He's given us physical eyes to detect physical things, He's made us in His image. Given us the ability to detect His existence and His power and His nature and His handiwork and all the things that He's made. The problem is that as sinners, we don't want Him to rule over us and so we don't want to admit that He's God. And so we come up with another scheme that gets us out from under culpability and responsibility of serving Him as our Lord. That's what people are doing. They, they deny it. We all did by nature. Not because it's an unreasonable, irrational thing, but because we don't like it. We don't want to deal with the ramifications of the reality of the Almighty, Sovereign, Holy God who made us in His image. We don't want to answer to Him in our sin. We don't want to submit to Him in our sin. We don't want to be accountable to Him So we suppress His truth. We substitute it for falsehoods and lies and gods and idols and we outright deny Him. It's like going into the Louvre and saying, I don't want to deal with the Mona Lisa and so we gouge out our own eyes. That's that's literally what unbelief is. But the reality is that God is and that He is holy and that He is just. And again, people don't like that, but it's a good thing. You don't want a God who is unjust. You don't want a God who just overlooks sin and goes, well, it's no big deal. Every one of us wants justice in this world. You turn on the news and you see what's going on in Ukraine and it makes you seethe to see those mass graves and those bombed hospitals and kindergartens. And you want, just, you want somebody to go in there and do something about it. Well, God is that guy who does and who will. It's a good thing, right? An unjust God is no God at all. A God who overlooks horrible wickedness and and leaves it unchecked is no God at all. He's unworthy of being worshipped if that's who He is. But see, this is who God is. He's just, He's righteous, He's holy. We're the ones who aren't. Well, then why isn't He fixing it? Because He's patiently redeeming people out of it. He could come right now and put an end to it all and wipe it all off the face of the earth. And I'm so glad that he hasn't yet because 
He saved me. And today, if He doesn't return, it means He's saving who knows how many other eternal souls. One day He will come. And He will make every wrong right. We're the ones who aren't holy. We're the ones who are sinful. And the wages of sin, the righteous and just wages, is is death. That's the punishment that fits the crime of falling infinitely short of God's eternal holiness. And see, if Jesus didn't defeat death on the cross, then we are all still in our sins. And there is no substitute payment, and we will have to make the payment ourselves for all of eternity of falling infinitely short of God's eternal holiness. And that would mean the entire human race, every man, woman, and child for all of history, even verse 18, those who have died believing in Jesus, all of us will perish eternally if Jesus wasn't actually raised in everlasting victory. I mean, the implications are unimaginably massive, right? Verse 19 is kind of Paul's summation of it. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people to be most pitied. If he's just a good example for us to follow, so that in this life we can have the best time possible, then we are to be most pitied because after the blink of an eye that is this life, maybe you get 100 years, maybe you get 110, 15, maybe, but not most of us, but maybe, after that is an eternity of death and condemnation as God sets right everything that we did wrong and falling infinitely short of His eternal glory. And see, this is the thing. This is exactly what many, many Christians and churches are are doing. This is what they've tragically reduced Jesus Christ to and the hope that we have in Him. This is what they've reduced it to. A hope for this world. A hope for your best life now. They've capitulated. They've unhitched the message of Jesus and the cross from the problem of sin. And they've made him a life coach. They've made him your spiritual personal trainer. They've made him an inspirational and motivational role model so that you can have your best life now. They've put all the focus on how Jesus makes us feel and mostly about how he can make us feel good about ourselves. He's a source of therapeutic and, 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 and psychological consolation instead of the Savior who delivers us from sin and from the wrath of God. And in that kind of paradigm, which is the prevailing one in churches today, what need of there is there of an actual historical resurrection from the dead? Which is why so many people say, I don't really believe it happened because I took a science class and it doesn't seem reasonable. And it doesn't matter anyways. Why does it matter? Maybe he did raise, maybe he didn't. What matters is that he's inspiring me to feel good about myself and do my best in this world and have the best experience with my fellow man in this life primarily. And that kind of emphasis is rampant. And it reduces all of the hope that Christ gives to this life only in Paul's words. Hope that we might be able to overcome our fears and our inadequacies and learn how to make an impact and make a difference. 
But there's no eternal hope in that scheme and in those messages. There's no life everlasting through the forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation and sanctification and glorification and all that is mortal being made immortal in that scheme. Unless Jesus is the Savior of our sins and and if He primarily delivers us from from loneliness and poor self-esteem and depression instead of the wrath of the Holy God, then there's no hope. The only hope He can offer us is a shallow, empty, feeble hope for this life only. And the word that Paul uses for people that have a hope in Jesus that only applies to this life only like that is the Greek word elienos. It means, it, means, it means pathetic is literally what the word means. If that's all Jesus is, if the hope that we can derive from believing in Him benefits us in this life primarily or only, then the hope is pathetic and we are pathetic for believing in it, right? We are of all people to be most pitied. That's that word. Elianos means to be deserving of sympathy for someone's pathetic, miserable, pitiable condition. And that's what Paul says we are if we hope in Christ for this life only, if we deny the sufficiency of His sacrifice for our sins on the cross and the victory that He achieved over death by His resurrection. We deserve to be pitied. We're miserable. We're pathetic. If we exchange the eternal hope for a hope that is only for this life. Well, I mean, if Christ didn't rise, it's dire. And this is pretty, this is pretty dark stuff, right? This is gloomy stuff. The gospel's devoid of power. Our faith is worthless. The, the scriptures, the prophets, the apostles, they're all false. We're left hopeless in our sins. Everybody's going to perish. All of those who are still following Him are left with some shallow, empty, pathetic hope that's just for this life. Miserable, right? But, verse 20. Verse 20 is the Sunday morning of this passage. Verse 20 is the resurrection of this text. Verse 20 is the disciples on Saturday having broken hearts and shattered dreams and expectations and then hearing the women come and say, we went to the tomb and it was empty. And all of a sudden they're running and they're racing and they can't get there fast enough to see that empty tomb and hear the angel say, He is not here for He is risen. That's verse 20 here. But in fact... Indeed, Christ has been raised. And so all of those dire consequences and miseries and terrors of verses 12 through 19 are resolved by this majestic proclamation of verse 20. Peter and John got to the tomb in Luke's Gospel and an angel proclaimed to them, Why are you looking for Him in a graveyard? Why would he be here among the tombs? This is where dead people are. He's not here because he's not dead. For he is risen. Isn't that a great proclamation? Now the Holy Spirit, who's greater than that angel, is proclaiming to you, in spite of all of the doubt and rationalism and Gnosticism and 
sinful, truth-suppressing unbelief of this world that says you're, you're, you're an idiot for believing in the resurrection. Despite all of that, the living God who made this world says, in fact, indeed, Jesus has been raised. The tomb is empty. As much as the Romans and the unbelieving Jews would have loved to have turned up a body after Sunday, it would have solved a lot of problems for them, right? As much as archaeologists who don't believe would love to be digging around in the dirt in Israel and find some evidence Of the bones of Jesus, no one in the last 2,000 years has ever turned up so much of a trace. Because he's not there. There's no bones in no tomb that belong to Jesus. Indeed, he has been raised. The Roman guard that was stationed outside of Jesus' tomb had no answer. This cohort of well-trained military people that just had one job to watch a rock. Make sure nothing happens to the rock. They had no explanation. Why is the tomb empty, guys? Uh, The apostles and the disciples and the friends and the family of Jesus, they all saw him after the crucifixion. 500 plus witnesses, Paul says right here, all provided rock-solid corroborating testimony. You go to any court of law in this secular land and line up 500 people all saying the same thing. That is powerful testimony. Indeed, he has been raised. The disciples of Jesus who could have cut their mouth shut and said, you know... We, we thought he was a great guy and he had all the answers, but then he ended up dead. And uh, we should just get on with things because we don't want to end up dead with him. They could have just kept their mouths shut, gone on their merry ways after the crucifixion, pursued the hope that is in this life if he hadn't been raised. But instead, what did they all do? They all cast aside any worldly hope, any earthly ambition, any aspiration in this world, any comfort. They embraced suffering and persecution and martyrdom in order to proclaim the truth and the eternal hope of the crucified Jesus who they saw raised, who they talked to, who they heard, who they watched ascend up into heaven. Indeed, he has been raised. And so, the gospel is not worthless. It is the power of God unto salvation. Your faith is not futile. You are not left in your sins because He achieved victory over them. The Scriptures are not a false witness. It's the Word of God that gives life. Your hope is not only in this life, but in the eternal life that is to come in the everlasting kingdom of heaven. Because as surely as Jesus has indeed been raised physically, bodily from the grave, in Him, by that same power and life, we have been raised spiritually already to newness of life. And in Him we will, just as surely as he was raised up bodily, we will 
be raised up bodily also. And this was this is the hope and how Paul concludes it all, right? We got to wrap it up. Look all the way down to verse 50. We're going to edit out a big chunk here. Just jump down to 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, he means mortal bodies that have been subject to death and decay, cannot inherit the kingdom. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. You want to spend eternity in the eternal kingdom, you can't bring this mortal body there. So, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. But we shall all, all who are in Christ, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, which is when Jesus returns, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, the one that's groaning and creaking, and that you keep having to go to the doctor and undergo unpleasant procedures about, This perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, this is the physical resurrection of your body when Jesus comes. Then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because again, death is not just some inconvenient, physical, natural phenomenon. It is the sting of death. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory even over death. Even over physical decay. Indeed, Jesus has been raised. And so far from being left in our sins or the gospel being useless... We've been forgiven. We've been justified. We've been raised with Him to newness of life. We've been made to be new creations. And one day that's going to apply to your body as well as to your soul. So, so far from your hope being in this life only, you'll be changed, you'll be raised bodily, physically in Him. And these perishable bodies will put on imperishability. And you will inherit forever the eternal kingdom of heaven. These bodies must be changed, must be raised. And in that way, for all who are in Christ and who live by faith in Him, the sting of death and death itself will be fully and finally vanquished forever and we will live with Him forever in everlasting victory in life. Do you want that? There's only one way to it. So say it. He is risen. risen indeed. Jesus lives and so shall we. Amen. Our God and our Father, would you help us to see the import of these truths? And would you help us to have confidence in our lives, in our risen Lord Jesus Christ, and in the everlasting life that comes through faith in Him? Father, if there are any in this room today, whose eyes are blind to this truth, we pray. By the power of your gospel, open those eyes. If there are any souls which still lay in the grave, 
Father, raise them to newness of life in Christ Jesus. Help them see, help them believe, help them know, as Paul knew on the Damascus Road, that he is the way and the truth and the life. And Father, give us all hope in this world as we sojourn and pilgrim our way through that there is waiting for us a hope that is not just for this world, but that is eternal and that you are preparing us for it. And so, Father, may we live according to that hope and not just according to the things of this world. Father, give us confidence to say, Jesus lives and so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever in him. We love you and we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.